You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Very glad to have all of you along with me today. You know, over the past year, year and change, we've done a few shows on entrepreneurship, and we've noticed from the reaction that we've gotten from all of you who send us your letters and your comments and your tweets and your Facebooks, and we love them, keep them coming, that this is a topic that really, really resonates. And I totally get that. I am, I like to call myself a reluctant entrepreneur because I was very, very happy in a corporate job, quite frankly, and it took getting fired to push me out the door of Money Magazine and push me into a life where I do essentially run a small business. You all know Kelly and Hayden, the members of my team. We do a number of things. We create a lot of content. We still do a lot of journalism. We do some consulting. It's a life I never expected to have for myself. And I think there are a lot of women in that boat. We took a look at the statistics and the number of women-owned businesses has jumped by 45% since 2007 until last year. That's according to some research from American Express. And whether you are one of them already or whether you think you might want to be someday, or whether you think, nah, this life isn't for me, you are still going to love today's guest. We are on the line with J.J. Ramberg, my friend. She is the host of Your Business on MSNBC. It's It's been on MSNBC for 12 seasons now. She's also the founder of goodshop.com, which is one of those search engines that you can shop through. And this is special because it donates a percentage of its revenue to the charities and the schools that its users designate. And most exciting right now, she has a new children's book out about entrepreneurship. It's a chapter book for young readers called The Startup Club. Hey, JJ, welcome. Hey, Jane. So nice to talk to you. It's really nice to talk to you, too. And congratulations on the book. It's adorable. Thank you. I'm so excited about it. Out of everything that I've done recently, it is by far the thing I'm most excited about. You know, when I was looking at it, I was reminded of when I was a young reader, there was a series of books called Ginny's Babysitting Club. Did you ever read those? I'm just, I'm quickly doing the math. Am I older than you or younger than oh you? Oh my God, you are so much books. younger than me. <laughs> I don't remember those books, but I think it's the same idea, right? About kids, I'm guessing kids who, who have initiative and start something. Yeah, and there was a whole series of them. So take a look, look them up, find them on eBay. They are ancient at this point, but they are maybe a forerunner of, of the startup club. It, tell me, I mean, you have seen at this point so many entrepreneurs. 
What do you think makes the quintessential entrepreneur these days? You have to have a real belief in what you're doing. I think that's at the core of it, right? You have to be able to defend whatever it is you're doing, even in the darkest moments when everything looks like it's falling apart around you. And I don't mean defend something that's a bad idea. You have to be open-minded and willing to change as well. But you have to be willing to really take all the punches as well as all the accolades that you're going to get. So you are an entrepreneur. You founded GoodShop.com with your brother. Have you always known that you were an entrepreneur or is this something that you discovered about yourself as you went through life? You know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So my mom, this is the story I tell myself all the time and so many women out there who haven't maybe found what they want to do yet. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and then in her late 40s, her mid to late 40s, she and my brother started a company called JobTrack. He was just out of college. My mom had not really ever had a paying job before, though she did a lot of volunteer work. And this was pre-internet, so it's quite different than it is today. My mom started this company and worked her butt off, and then um, 13 years later sold it to Monster.com. Wow, good for them. Oh, yeah. It's the most incredible story. But they worked so hard. And the, and the reason they were so successful, right, they they started their company. Then the Internet came. Venture money seeped into their to their little corner of the industry. But they didn't take any. But they had been competitors out there with millions of millions of dollars who couldn't compete with them because my mom and brother had just worked so hard and built such good relationships um, in their industry. But I really got to have a front row seat watching her do that. And so I think I had the bug. Also, my dad started a a few small businesses of his own and my grandfather's. And so I I think I just, I don't know if it's what I knew I wanted to do, but it was just certainly in the air for me. It it, it didn't seem like a big leap when we had this idea Mm -hmm. to start Good Shop to go ahead and start a company. And how is Good Shop doing? It's great. So we just launched something new called Gumdrop, which is this browser plugin, and it it just takes a second to add. And then every time you go to a store, it automatically puts the best coupons in at the end, so you never have to go search for coupons anymore. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's so easy. It's really, it's it's awesome, I got to say. But in addition, a percentage of what you spend goes back to your favorite charity or school. So uh, we've raised about $13 million for causes now. And, and, but mostly we've always had the, the cause part, which is fun and makes me feel very good about this. But the ease of gumdrop now and getting the coupons without even having to think about it is what I'm very excited about. Yeah, I mean, I'm always telling people, and I won't need to do that anymore, to go and Google the name of the store and the word coupon before you ever make a purchase. But this makes that irrelevant and unnecessary. Exactly. You never have to search for a coupon again. It just happens. And even and it doesn't it doesn't even allow you to forget anymore. And it <laughs> right? finds so it them all it for you. It finds them all. Yes. Wow. We have an enormous database of coupons and people are always unearthing the best coupons and they're all in gumdrop. So if a coupon doesn't come up, it's basically because one doesn't exist. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, We're excited about it. So we know so many people in this country that have what they think is the next great idea. There are 40 million freelancers out there. Some of our listeners are freelancers. When you have an idea, whether it's for a good shop or a gumdrop or something else, how do you know if it's 
scalable? How do you know if it's a business or a hobby? Yeah, that's a really good question. And look, I mean, I hate to say this, but I say it too. Ideas are a dime a dozen, right? Lots of people have the same idea and it's the execution that sets the successful companies apart from the other ones. But when you're just in the idea phase, you have to go out and talk to people. What happens, and I will tell you, this has happened to me when launching products in my company, is you sit around with your partner or your spouse or your kids and you say, I have this idea and everyone gets excited about it and tells you it's great and you think it's great. And so you spend all this time and money on it and you launch it and nobody wants it. So you really have to get some honest, honest feedback, which is hard to do, but honest feedback. And if you can launch something, if it's a website, it's relatively simple and cheap to just launch something and see how people interact with it. And then you can change your idea based on how you see people are reacting. I am so guilty of that. I tend to fall in love with my own ideas. Oh, we all do. I mean, look, we launched... I don't know, maybe seven years ago on Good Shop, good TV ads. I was positive that people were going to watch TV ads on our website so that their cause could get money for it. I loved that idea. <laughs> it was a massive failure. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's a hallmark of a true entrepreneur. I mean, I've seen research on the fact that many of them fail multiple oh, times fail. before they <laughs> succeed. And and I think that's the beauty. I always think when I when I want to go hire someone, I would absolutely, you know, my my ears would perk up for someone who has failed because you learn so much from a failure that you take to your next position or your next job or your next venture. And also the way you deal with that failure is very telling about I mean, look, every job, we all know this, has had has hard parts. And you succeed if you can deal with the hard parts. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get to those hard parts, one of which is raising money. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with JJ Ramberg. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. All right. We mentioned money. We mentioned investors. It's more difficult for women to raise capital than it is for men. Why do you think that's still true? And how can women get ahead of the curve? I think a lot of it is about networks. So I've spoken to lots of women who said, of course, they've had trouble raising money. And then I've spoken to women who said they've had no trouble raising money. And it's not always necessarily that one person's idea was better than the other. It was that, amongst other reasons, the second person had networks. And I think we need to really, as women, tap into our networks and create networks for ourselves. How do you do that? You just start. Easier, of course, in New York City because there are a lot of high-powered women in big jobs, and I think people are pretty focused on this. But I'll use what I feel is happening right now, at least in my world, and and people can copy it in their own. But I've been invited to a number of women's dinners over the past three years or so, and it's women from all different industries, and we all get together. And at the end of dinner, I find it's a trend, we go around the table and say, what do you need? 
Mm. Right. And people are very specific. Like I'm trying to raise money. I need an introduction to someone at the Wall Street Journal. I'm, you know, and it could be personal too, right? I need a new babysitter. And I think that when people are put in a space where you're welcome to be kind of pushy, you're not pushy is the wrong word, but you're welcome to blatantly ask for what you want. Mm -hmm. And in a way where people feel comfortable about it, everyone's willing to help. Yeah. Right. Uh, people are really willing to help, but they want it to be easy. And so I would suggest starting some of these dinners or lunches or coffees in your own neighborhood. Right. And maybe not that many people will come at first, but eventually it will become a thing and networks beget networks. Right. And so you have then friends of friends who you can turn to. And so let's say we do this and we find these friends of friends that we can turn to and we eventually do get in front of an investor or two. How do you make your best pitch? You have to be confident. You know, it's so interesting. I grew up with the most confident mother who was a very successful entrepreneur. I went to an all-girls school where, you know, Women's History Month was basically our Christmas. <laughs> we had Gloria Steinem talking to us. I really felt like I was taught to be a confident girl growing up and then woman. And yet when I read Lean In, yeah. Sheryl Sandberg's book, I really saw myself in a lot of those pages. And so it's interesting, right? I was given every leg up on the confidence chart here. Um, and I also worked for strong women. And so um, I believe a lot of it is understanding the way you are being perceived by the person you're talking to and really understanding them and what's going to kind of tickle their fancy, right? And so know your numbers, go in there and know your numbers back and forth. Look people in the eye, feel confident in what you have to pitch, I think, again, a lot of investors that I talk to do not have a bias against women. They've made a lot of money off of women entrepreneurs. But I do believe there is some real bias and definitely some unconscious bias out there. And so you have to be well prepared to answer every single question somebody has so that they forget if you're talking to a man or a woman. You see so many businesses, so many small businesses, so many entrepreneurs coming through the pipeline of the Your Business show. What areas do you think are ripe for growth in the next decade or so? I mean, what if you had to put your finger on places where people who want to make money can make money, where would you put that finger? You know, it's interesting, right? You, you can read statistics about this. There, there's obviously a big need in healthcare, And as, as baby boomers age, there's needs there. And the gig economy is just getting bigger and bigger. But what I find is that if you, at least the people that I talk to mostly, are not so much looking for where is the, where's the big opportunity that I can see in statistics as where's my passion, right? Where, where do I see that there is a hole in something that I understand even vaguely. And how can I dig into that? Because I do think there are opportunities everywhere. Before we wrap up, let's go back to the Startup Club. You said it's your favorite project. Why'd you write it? Why is there a need for this kind of a book for kids? Well, because I'm like you, Jean, right? I believe that people need to understand their finances. Um, and it is a disaster if you don't. And for kids, they're natural entrepreneurs, right? My kids have this summer, they've had a lemonade stand. They've had a, a dog walking business, a carting business. And they're not the only ones, right? Right. All kids do. And so I think of entrepreneurship and the stories about it as kind of a gateway into kids starting to understand money. 
And so we created the startup club so we could create characters that kids could relate to who start their own business. And then through it, we teach what's the difference between profit and revenue and what happens when there's competition and what do you do with your money after you make it? It's such an interesting process to go through with kids. I, I remember I, my daughter came home one summer from camp and wanted to make ribbon belts. And she knew how to do it and she knew what material she needed and she figured out what she could sell them for. What she didn't do was sew. And so just to get the seams and the hooks sewn on to each of these ribbon belts, she said, we can take them to the dry cleaner and we'll have them sew them on. That added $10 to the cost of each belt. She had to figure that into her numbers, and all of a sudden it didn't work. And it, I thought it was a really valuable lesson because so often kids will start a lemonade stand and they'll just take things out of the pantry and not understand that there's a cost to those items. Oh, it's so funny. I, this friend of mine, I was at her house the other day, and her son was insisting on making it with fresh lemons, and she was insisting on making it with powder and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and because near their house, it was a very expensive store, and the lemons were extraordinarily expensive. And, and I felt like, he, you know, he was going after quality, and she was going after revenue, I mean, profit. And I felt like, oh, my God, this is like a classic founder-investor conversation that I'm watching going on here. <laughs> Absolutely. And better earlier than later. J.J. Ramberg, the book is The Startup Club. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, This was so fun. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. We'll talk soon. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. Do you have, you do, you have entrepreneurial tendencies. I have seen them in the past few years? I don't know. I think now I do. You being someone I work so closely with and you being also not just my boss, but my mentor, I think I've become more comfortable with the idea or the risk that comes with being an entrepreneur. But I, for the most part, when I was coming out of school, I definitely was thinking more traditional office space, uh, not the lifestyle that I've I've had these past four years, but I'm so in love with it. No. It'll be hard to go back. I, I don't think I can. Yeah. Actually, yeah. maybe I shouldn't say that because who knows what's to come down the line. But at this point, I can't imagine myself in an office on a daily basis. I know. It's I know. Weird. It's it's weird. And, and it's, I mean, for me, the things about being an entrepreneur that made me so reluctant were all the systems that are involved when you have employees and you, you know, workers' comp insurance Mm -hmm. and getting all of the – in office space. And, I mean, we – you know, we've crafted together shared office space. And it sort of happened, I think, more or less organically, but – I liked it when somebody else was responsible right. for all of that stuff. Well, yeah, you're you're in charge and you're yeah. in charge like I think I've read this from other bosses that it's you know the weight of making sure your employees are taken care of not just that they're doing their work but also that they're being taken care of. Sometimes it can be really heavy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okie dokie. And on that note, let's lighten it up a little bit and take some questions from our mailbag. What do we have? Our first question is from Christine. She writes, my husband and I are both teachers and have been contributing to our state retirement pensions since we started our careers. We contribute 11% each paycheck. Even though we are guaranteed a set income when we retire, how much extra should we save? I've heard retirement readiness is a number versus an age. How can I be sure we will have enough with the pension as our primary nest egg? 
Also, if we look to do a Roth IRA, I'm concerned that we may not be able to contribute because of the income limits. They may not be able to contribute because of the income limits, but off the top of my head, you've got a pension and you're contributing 11%, you're doing just fine. That is generally plenty. What we know numerically is for people who are contributing 15%, that'll get them to the same standard of living if, as long as they do it on a consistent basis in retirement that they have before retirement. I would suggest you take a look at these benchmarks that Fidelity has put together. And I'll explain how a pension works with those. So essentially, Fidelity put together these benchmarks for the amount of money you should be saving for retirement. And by age 30, you should have one times your income. By age 40, three times. By age 50, six times. By age 60, eight times. And by retirement, 10 times. And that is meant to cover 45% of your pre-retirement income. The rest will come from Social Security for most people. If you've got a pension, you can soft pedal the amount that you have to contribute to get to those benchmarks. And I lay out the entire formula in age proof, but essentially, if you know that your pension is going to cover, let's say, 30% of your pre-retirement income, then you only have to save enough to cover the other 15% of your pre-retirement income. And the last thing, I know this is getting very, very no, complicated in your... I want a pension too now. Well, only <laughs> go be a teacher. <laughs> I mean, or a, a firefighter or a police officer. And only about 17% of people in this country have pensions. And I just want to explain one more thing because we got really heavy in the numbers right there. The 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 reason that we're only focused on the 45% plus Social Security, which will get you to about 70-ish percent for most people, is that you don't have to replace whatever you're saving. So the the saving sort of comes off the top, and that's how the numbers start to work. It isn't that the cost of life pre-retirement and post-retirement is really all that different. You know, we often do those handouts where if people want the numbers, they can send us an email. We'll put this in writing. And so if people want the numbers, send us an email and we will shoot you our little cheat sheet Mm -hmm. on retirement readiness. And the same goes for our Thrive today, too. So if you are nearby pen and paper, it'll be good to have that. So thank you, Christine. Our next question is from Tyler. I'm a college student who has done well saving money. I have no debts. I want to invest 10 to 15,000 in a CD or something else. What do you recommend? I recommend two things. I recommend thinking about what this money is for. If this is long-term money, don't put it in a CD. If this is long-term money, open a Roth IRA, assuming you've got enough income to support a Roth IRA, and invest the money in a portfolio largely of stocks, maybe a little bit of bonds to capture growth because you are so young. So young. You've got 50 years for the market to do its up and down thing before you need this money if you're planning on using this money for retirement. Now, if it's for a different goal, if it is for something that you're planning on using it 
for within the next five years, then okay, you put it in an investment that'll get you a little more than a savings account, but won't put it at risk. But otherwise, you're being way too conservative. This is the time to go wild. But do good in school. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And one more from Emily. This is a good one. My credit card provides me with my free FICO credit score. Since January, my score has steadily dropped each month from 829 to 794. During these months, I used the card regularly and paid off the balance each month, just as I always have. I checked my Equifax free credit report last month, and all of the information for this card was accurately reported. The credit card site says that my score has gone down because, quote, FICO scores consider whether a person's credit report shows recent balances on revolving accounts. Your FICO score was impacted because you are not currently demonstrating active revolving credit management. I know 794 is still a good score, but I'm confused as to why my score would drop. My guess, and it is just a guess based on the fact that that language they gave you is incredibly cryptic Mm -hmm. and they need to rewrite it and you can quote me on that. My guess is that you have been using more of your credit limit and you should be using only 10 to 30% of your available credit each month. And it doesn't matter if you pay it off at the end of the month. If you are using more than that 30%, it will take your score down a little bit. So maybe you've had some big expenditures and you planned for those big expenditures and you paid off those big expenditures. It could still knock your score a little bit. Please don't worry about this. There are plenty of months where my score is not 794, and it's always in the excellent range, but I try not to micromanage it because, as we know, the formulas are a little bit confounding. As long as you're doing the best that you can on a consistent basis, you will be just fine. Thank you, Jean. Thanks so much for those great questions. Remember, we want to answer whatever is on your mind. So hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook at jeanchatsky.com. And in our weekly Thrive segment, we spoke a lot about entrepreneurs and side giggers and freelancers in our conversation with JJ. And What we learned based on some reporting by Laura Saunders in the Wall Street Journal just recently is that the number of Americans who are found to have been underpaying some of their taxes rose nearly 40 percent in recent years. It it is a little puzzling to the experts, but it's largely something that's impacting people who pay taxes quarterly like those business owners and retirees and members of the gig economy. And the problem is that these underpayers are going to owe penalties in the form of interest. This interest is not deductible. Sometimes it's expensive. So we wanted to try to help you sort this out. We spoke with Greg Rosica. He's a tax partner at Ernst & Young. And he says there are three methods that you can use to get on top of this. For all of them, it's a good idea to 
use last year's tax return as a starting point and to mark your calendar now. By the way, I do this. I pay taxes quarterly and I have calendar reminders set for two weeks before each tax payment is due. Very helpful. The four estimated tax payments are due on April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and January 15th. Okay, here are the three methods. Number one, look at how much you paid in taxes on last year's return. Divide that amount by four. If you earned less than 150000 in income, pay 100% of the taxes you paid last year in four equal amounts throughout the year. If you earned more than $150,000, pay 110% of that amount. That's method number one. Method number two, estimate what 90% of your taxes will be this year. Again, base it on last year's return and make four equal payments of that 90% amount. You may end up by doing it this way, owing more money in April, but it may give you a little bit of wiggle room that you need to run your business or your life. And method number three, calculate your income over a few months, say three months that represent your income well, then annualize that number. So if it's three months, multiply by four. Now you'll have your estimated annual income and you can calculate how much you'll owe in taxes based on that and how much to pay in your four installments. As always, you can email us. We'll put these in a worksheet as well. We will send them off to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to my friend J.J. Ramberg of MSNBC, author of The Startup Club, for a terrific conversation. It was really great to have you here. And please tune in next week. We're going to have a wonderful conversation with Gretchen Rubin. She's got a new book out called The Four Tendencies. Fascinating stuff about why we work the way we work and what it has to do with how you handle your money, but also your career. Really, really interesting. As always, thanks to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX, and we'll talk soon.